You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Uh, our reading today comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of a burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you guys. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. First time guest visitors, if I haven't met you, my name is Josh, the pastor here. Um, honored that you're with us. You're an answer to prayer. Uh, go ahead, grab your Bibles if you haven't already. This morning, we're taking a little break from our series through Genesis, and um, we're spending the next week looking at the final week of Jesus's life. So we're zooming in on what's referred to as the Passion Week. The section we just heard read is uh, a story that's traditionally been read in the church, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And the events that we just read took place one week before Easter Sunday. Um, so today, we're, we're taking a look at Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Friday, um, five days later, we're going to be taking a look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then, of course, next Sunday, we're meeting in, in City Park for a big celebration there of Resurrection Sunday. Um, and Easter is the highlight of the Christian calendar. Often, Christmas kind of gets treated like that around the church. We'll do like um, six weeks of a Christmas series in the lead up to Christmas, and then we'll do like a really short lead up to Easter. It should probably be the other way around because Easter is the turning point in human history, not just in the Christian calendar. Really excited. Anyway, all, all that to say, really excited to get into the text this week. It's good stuff. If you have your Bible open to Matthew 21, you'll probably notice that, that right on top of uh, you know, whether it's digital or paper, right on the top there, you probably have a little subheading or a subtext, kind of a title that says the triumphal entry, because this section, it records Jesus entering into 
the, the city of Jerusalem in the week leading up to his crucifixion. In the story, we're going to be looking at this triumphal entry. It takes place in kind of three scenes. If this were a play, it'd be three scenes and there'd be three sets. Three of them. Um, you know, first, the Mount of Olives. Another set would be this road leading from the Mount of Olives up into Jerusalem. And then it would be within the temple itself. And so we're going to take a look at these three different scenes, three different sets. And I'm going to give them some titles. So if you're a note taker, this is for you. We're going we're gonna to take a look at these three scenes, which I've titled The People's Parade. The second scene, the ironic anthem. And the third and final scene of our section here, this story is the misunderstood kingdom. So again, if you haven't opened your Bibles, if you need them open here, if you don't have one, you can on your phone just Google Matthew 21. It'll pop up. And if you need one, we've got blue paperback ones in the back. That's our gift to you. And um, yeah, while you do that, I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Well, Father, I just I thank you for a chance to gather as your people. Thank you for this community that you're forming here. Thank you that it's through the events of Easter here that You've done all of this. You've come and you, you've, you've, you've stood in our place. You've gifted us a new heart. You've formed us and made us your people. You've broken open this promised blessing from the Jewish people to the Gentiles of the entire world. And so now we come together under Christ, under this banner of salvation, under this good news that has been purchased for us this Easter week. And so as we open up the text and as we enter into three different gatherings this week where we meditate upon the scripture that records this, this final week of Christ's life. We pray, Holy Spirit, come make it come alive in our hearts and minds. Would this story unpack in a deepened way in all of our hearts, whether we're hearing it for the first time or we're hearing it for the hundredth. There's glory to behold here, and we want to see it. We believe that as we behold it and our, our minds perceive it, that your word is true when it says we're transformed through the renewing of our minds. And so come and apply the scripture anew so that our minds would be renewed we commit this time to you. I commit um, just the unpacking of this text to you. Ask for the empowerment to do so. We pray in the great name of Christ. Amen. All right. Um, anyone here a Star Wars fan? A couple. So you know the beginning of Star Wars. Every single movie, there's the, the yellow text that fades off into the distance, setting the stage for where we're about to drop into the story. Because you're never at the very beginning. There's always something that took place. And that's very true. And we're, we're dropping into Matthew 21. A lot of story. 20 chapters of story has preceded this. And so when we open up and we read this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, what we need to know is that there's a lot that's happened before. In fact, for many, many chapters, they've been on a massive journey to Jerusalem. Um, and they, they started out in the north of the kingdom. And they've been migrating their way down to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Jesus has been traveling throughout the region, the entire kingdom, doing miracles, growing in fame, telling parables, and now Jesus and his disciples, they're headed back to the capital for the biggest celebration in the Jewish calendar, the, the Passover celebration. Every good Jew in the country would be coming to Jerusalem for this annual sacrifice and festival. And they're, they're headed back, and it says that they came to Bethpage, this city, Beth Page is joined together, kind of like a Siamese twin with another city called Bethany. Very famous scripture, or for, pardon me, very famous cities in the scripture. They come up a lot. A lot of notable events happen in here. And so when they drop this name in, it's because it's, there's important details that we need to know. Bethany, Beth Page is a place Jesus hung out a lot. Mary 
was from here. Martha was from here. Their brother Lazarus was from here. And um, it's very prominent in the scriptures. Attached to this city was the Mount of Olives. You've probably heard of that. I've spent hours walking around the Mount of Olives on Google Maps. And what always strikes me when I do this is that you get a really good lookout of the entire city of Jerusalem. From here, it's about 80 meters elevated above the Temple Mount, so you can see all sorts of stuff from here. And I think this is why Jesus came here. Um, I've already said they've been up north in the kingdom. They've been making their way back to Jerusalem, but they've come, they're coming back not just for the Passover. In fact, if we had been working through the Gospel of Matthew and come to this point, three notable events have already taken place. Jesus has told them why they're coming, and it's a bigger deal than just doing what every other Jew in the country was doing and coming back for this celebration. A few ch chapters earlier in the left to your Bibles in Matthew 16, we see Jesus say this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. Why? To suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's been telling them why they're coming. Actually, one more chapter to the right, Matthew 17, it says it again. As they were gathering in Galilee, so about 150K outside of Jerusalem, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Again, he tells them, actually just one chapter before we're dropping into the story in Matthew 20, he says, it says that as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, so that final ascent up into the city, he took the 12 disciples aside. He's like, okay, we're getting close. See, we're going into Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's a, a title for Jesus, he said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, but he'll be raised on the third day. He's telling them why they're going up. He's coming up to Jerusalem for the Passover, where a pure, unblemished lamb was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the nation, and he's coming up to be crucified as that sacrificial lamb who would take away the sins of the world. But if that's the case, and he's headed into Jerusalem, why have they stopped here on the Mount of Olives? Why are they here? The answer is because this place is actually really important. Again, when places come up in the scripture, it's not... It's not happenstance. There's an important detail here. Um, this place, the Mount of Olives, has a lot more history than we might realize. It's here that David is described in the Psalms of singing praise. It's here that his son Solomon erected temples to the gods of his foreign wives. And it's here that Josiah came and re restored worship by knocking down those idols and those places of worship. It's a very um, central place to the, the story of God. If, you actually, if you're looking for a fun topical story this week, go just go study Mount of Olives. Trace it back, forward to back in the scriptures. It will unpack this story in a lot greater detail. You'll see there's a strong connection between the Mount of Olives and the Messiah. Actually, a couple, couple scriptures that are quite notable. Many, many will be familiar with this scripture. I quote it all the time because it's the promise of the gospel, but... Uh, Ezekiel 11, and actually a little later in Ezekiel 36, we see the same thing. But in Ezekiel 11, it says, I'm going to give them one heart, a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is what the gospel is. God comes and does heart surgery on us, gives us a heart that desires him because our old one doesn't. He finds us dead. He does this surgery. This, 
an amazing scripture. But if we were to read on from Ezekiel 11, what we would see is in the verses proceeding from this, it actually describes the one who would come and do this as one day standing on the Mount of Olives, standing on this same hill Jesus is. Actually, as well, in Zechariah 14, we see it promised that the Messiah's feet would stand on the Mount of Olives. So why is Jesus here standing on the Mount of Olives? Not just to pick some vine-fresh kalamatas and have a picnic, though I suspect they've probably done that a few times. Jesus comes here to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about himself. So it says, when they came near to Jerusalem, came to Bethpage, onto the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. You're going to find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and they'll give them to you. Ah, interesting, interesting little detail thrown into the story. Like you might read this and go, why so much detail about this donkey and her colt? Why is this included in here? They've just done hundreds of kilometers of travel with no mention of what sort of animal they might have ridden on, what, like any of those little minute details. Why this sudden detail here? I mean, even if it just said Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, no one's going, hey, well, where did he get that donkey? Was it bought? Did he borrow it? Did it have any young with it? We're not asking those sorts of questions. So why is it getting so descriptive all of a sudden? Actually, again, in order to understand this, we need to know a thing or two about the Old Testament. There's lots of prophecies that are being fulfilled in this actual encounter. One of them, Zechariah 9.9, I've got it up on the screen. We read there that it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king's coming to you, righteous, having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The scripture gets very specific, so that when this very specific thing takes place, people would know what's going on. Here comes Jesus riding into town, not just on a donkey, but on a donkey with a colt. And this seemingly obscure detail is linking the Messiah, or showing Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. This took place, it says, tells us, to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, a beast of burden. So that little indent there, you can write Zechariah 9.9 beside it, because that's what it's quoting. It goes on to say, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on it. So Jesus comes into the vicinity, goes up the Mount of Olives. He sends his disciples to get the donkey. They come back with it. They throw their cloaks on it, make a little saddle. Jesus sits down. But then the scene changes. We move from the Mount of Olives. The next set rolls onto the stage, and things start to get certifiably crazy. What starts out as a run-of-the-mill Sunday donkey ride turns into a parade. Take a look at verse 8. It says, "The or pardon me, most of the crowd, so now there's a crowd there. The curtain lifts back up. There's hundreds of people, probably thousands of people. They're spreading their cloaks on the road. Others are cutting branches from the trees and putting them on the road. It, it says in verse 9, crowds are going before him. What's going on here? Uh, what, you might be wondering, where did this crowd come from? Well, 
I already mentioned the Passover is taking place, so every good Jew in the country is descending on the city of Jerusalem, a, a city which is probably about 100,000 people on average, has now probably close to 3 million people in it. It's like Kelowna City Park in the summertime. And the folks coming into town, they're coming from all around. The, the story of Jesus, the, the, the fame of Jesus has been spreading, and now here's Jesus. This guy they've been hearing about. Maybe they've seen him. Maybe they heard his parables. Maybe they saw him do a miracle. Now they've come to Jerusalem, and here's this Messiah figure again right there. And, and so people are thronging together. Furthermore, in John's account, we learn just a couple days before this. So in John's account of Ma the same story Matthew's telling, it says that Jesus came and, and found his friend Lazarus had been dead for four days, if you remember the story. Just days before this, Jesus goes up to the tomb of Lazarus where he's been entombed for four days. He walks up, rolls the stone away, yells in, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes back from the dead. This story is going viral, first century version of viral, and people have heard about it, and their minds are, are blown, and they're showing up to see what on earth is going on? And they show up, they find Jesus, they see he's fulfilling the prophecies about the descendant of David who would one day come. And so the people decide they want to put on a parade. They decide Jesus is this promised Messiah, king from Zechariah 9, and they decide they want to make him their king. So they spread their, their cloaks on the road, which is kind of the, the first century way of rolling out the red carpet. We've actually seen this before in the scriptures in 1 Kings 9. Jehu, if you know the story, Jehu becomes kings and he, come, he comes into the city to take down Ahab and Jezebel and they do the same thing for him. And they're hoping Jesus is going to be like Jehu. They hope he's going to be a violent warrior king who will come in and overthrow their overpressor or oppressor, pardon me. So they roll out the red carpet, put on a parade. But they do something else as we read on. What we're going to see is that they begin to sing a song. This is the second act in the story, the ironic anthem. Verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Most of us, we're familiar with these couple verses. If you've grown up in the church or you're a fan of 80s worship, these few verses are the subject and really the exact verbiage of many worship songs. But what do they mean? What does this word Hosanna mean? And it's important that we know this, so I'm going to get nerdy with you for a few minutes. Stick with me. The word Hosanna is um, often thought of as a declaration of praise, kind of similar how we might say praise the Lord or hallelujah. It's something we declare, but as we examine, what we're going to see is there's more going on here. So this word Hosanna, it's not actually an English word. That's why you're wondering, what does this word mean? It's not an English word. It's a word that the translators of the Bible took from the Greek version and just took the sound of the Greek word and made English letters to go along with it because we don't have a correlation for this word. There's not one word we can translate that would equivocate with Hosanna. So the way the Greeks were using this word at the time, very similar to how we would use it, kind of as a declaration of hope and praise. To shout Hosanna was an act of adoration and praise. But 
we need to know, not only is Hosanna not an English word, it's also not a Greek word. In reality, it's a Hebrew word that when people were translating this idea from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, into the New Testament, the Greek ones, they did the same thing that we've done in English. They just took the Hebrew word and put it into Greek, kind of. And along the way, some of the meaning of this got a little lost. So in English and Greek, Hosanna, it's kind of a declarative way to say, you are our savior. But in Hebrew, it's, it's an imperative that means, save us, we pray. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an analogy just so this makes sense. How many have been on a ferry before? Took a ferry to the coast. So if you, if you go down to Tsawasin, you hop a ferry, you go to Victoria, and you get up on one of the amazing decks, and you, you pull out your phone, and you lean way over with your selfie stick and to take a picture, and you fell over the railing, tumbled down into the wake behind the whatever ferry you might be on. You would yell out, save me! Now, that, that is the true meaning of the word, Hosanna. Save me. Now, if they dispatched the Zodiac from the edge of the boat and it came and picked you up and you dragged you up onto it and finally you're safe and you're not become killer whale food, you would go, you saved me, thank you. That's how we're using the word Hosanna. In its original way, it was a save me, I pray, in, in, in Greek and in the English, it's become this, you are my savior, we need to see, though, that they're very different things. One is declarative, one's imperative. The word Hosanna is only used one time in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, 25, where the word Hosanna gets translated into English as, save us, we pray, O Lord. So six words to communicate the same idea that one Hebrew word is communicating, and What's interesting is this psalm, Psalm 118, it's actually the psalm that is recorded Jesus praying in the upper room. It's, it's, it's the same psalm that we're told we're going to one day, it's the official psalm of the Passover as well, should have mentioned that, and it's the psalm that Revelation says one day we're going to be singing Hosanna. It's an important psalm. And so I bring this all up because there's an irony in the anthem that the people are singing. The masses aren't understanding what they're saying as they're laying down their cloaks and the palm branches. They're shouting, you are the Savior, without realizing they should have been shouting was the original meaning of this word, save us, we pray, O Lord. They're shouting Savior, not realizing they should have been pleading, save us. They're missing the point. They're saying the words, but they're missing the point. And, and I don't want to move on too quickly because the same error that the people at this time were falling into, I think is one that we fall into as well. Singing songs and calling Jesus Savior without actually calling out to him for saving, without even realizing that there's things that we need saving from. And I'm going to say this. If you have not called out to Jesus for saving, he is not your savior. He's your judge. He's the God that you've sinned against who will one day return to righteously judge your sin. And to call him your savior without ever crying out to him is to miss the point. In fact, he cannot be your savior until you see that he is the one you need saving from. It's against him that you've sinned, and he's the one that will return to judge. And if we don't see our sinfulness, we won't call out to him for saving. If we don't see that we're in the jet stream or whatever you would call it, the, 
the churned up water behind the ferry, you will not call out for saving. They were calling Jesus Savior without calling out for saving. And I need to ask us as well, is there an irony in the anthem that you and I are singing? There's an irony in their anthem. Is there an irony in ours? Do we say the words that Jesus is the Savior but then refuse to live like he is? Hosanna is an imperative before it's a declarative. He can only be your Savior if you've called out to him for saving. And as we read on, what we're going to see is they, they've not only misunderstood the word Hosanna, but they've misunderstood the nature of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. This is our third point, which is the misunderstood kingdom, the third scene of the play. So Jesus comes into town. The people put on a parade. It turns into a musical. And then we read this. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in it, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. And leaving them, pay attention to this, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus comes into town, great crowd following him, but this section concludes with Jesus leaving town without them. It doesn't even, it's not even clear whether his disciples followed him out of town. If you go read the other accounts, it's the same thing. The great crowd of people who were hailing him as king all of a sudden are no longer anywhere to be seen. In fact, after the royal fanfare and the grand parade dissipates, we don't even see them again until Jesus is brought up before the, um, the entire nation to be crucified where we find the same crowds who were before shouting Hosanna now shouting crucify him. But what changed? Why the sudden change in the crowd's attitude towards him? What could have caused this radical change? Why switch from crying Hosanna to crucify him? I think, I think it's the same thing that leads many today to walk away from Christ. I've had many friends walk away. I know pastors who've walked away from Jesus. What causes it? What would lead to someone doing this? I think there's three things, three reasons that we misunderstand God's kingdom is that it doesn't arrive in our timing, it doesn't come on our turf, and it doesn't happen on our terms. In verse 8 to 10, we read, Jesus goes into town through this massive procession of people chanting Hosanna, giving him the royal entrance, laying down clothes and jackets. He rides the little donkey up through the streets. The crowd is electric. People are excited, and in order to understand why, we need to understand why the people, or what the people would have been thinking, rather. So steeped into the consciousness of the Jewish people was a longing for them to once again be their own autonomous nation. They longed for their glory days when they had someone like King David overseeing the kingdom. But for about the last 700 
700 plus years, they've been under the dominion of a foreign nation. Now for about the last 90, Rome has been um, occupying them. And so when the Romans took power, they let them continue to worship. Do your thing, okay? Just give us tax. Just give us tax. And so now in addition to tithing to the temple, they were having to give money to Rome as well. And they wanted someone to come and free them from this oppression of Rome. Not just oppression, they wanted, they wanted more money. They wanted more stuff. And something else here we need to understand, that they'd rallied behind other people before. They'd shouted Hosanna at other people before. They'd thrown other parades. There was a political group called the Zealots at the time who, um, who refused to pay taxes to Rome and, um, and had regularly tried to overthrow Rome um, they, several of these zealots had failed. Uh, they had failed to win back their independence. They, um, you know, these zealots then would be thrown in prison and, and people would go and try to find another one. The people are, are rallying behind Jesus because they think he's a more powerful zealot. They're thinking, well, he's got some scriptural fulfillment. He's been doing miracles. He must be the guy. And they're expecting him um, to, to come and overthrow Rome. And so they're, they're marching behind Jesus as he goes into town. But as Jesus comes up the hill into Jerusalem, he doesn't hang a left and, and march up to Herod's temple. That's where they think he's going. They think he's coming in to, to march right up to the seat of power to overthrow Rome. But instead of hanging that left, he takes a right and he walks into the temple. And they must be wondering, what are you doing there? He goes in and he, he overthrows tables. You know these stories, the, the angry Jesus. Doesn't kind of match up with that Galilean like hippie wandering around in, in a toga image that we have, doling out hugs. Jesus comes in, he gets mad, and he overturns the temple. Why? Because... He doesn't come to free us from our earthly oppressor. He comes to free us from our spiritual oppressor. And the whole religious system that had been set up, these money tables, these exchanges, all of the things that it was never meant to be, he despises. He comes and he turns it over. He actually doesn't want to preserve that. He wants to do away with it. And we actually see um, Jesus later on prophesied that this temple would be destroyed. And in 70 AD it was, and it hasn't been rebuilt. Because Jesus didn't come to do away with Rome. He came to do away with a religious system that could never make us right before God. And the people don't like this. He walks into the temple, and the crowd that followed him in, we don't see again until they're yelling, crucify him. We see again, though, when Jesus is arrested and they come. We're going to talk about this on Friday. Pontius Pilate stands in front of the nation of Israel, which was a custom to do on the Passover, and free one prisoner. And they offer, do you want Jesus, the one who's been healing the sick, giving sight back to the, the blind, raising the dead, doing miracles? Do you want this guy or do you want Barabbas? Barabbas was another zealot who'd tried to overthrow Rome. And instead of crying, Hosanna, save us to Jesus, they yell, save us to Barabbas. They say, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. Because Barabbas actually tried to overthrow Rome and that's what they want. They're not worshiping Jesus. 
for who he really is as he comes into town. We, we saw this with the misuse of the word of Hosanna. They, they aren't worshiping him because he's the God-man who came to save them from their sins. They're worshiping him because they think he can overthrow Rome for them. They're worshiping the idea of being freed into self-autonomy, more autonomy and more money. They want a king that will free them now. And I, I think that we're, we're very similar. And I think many people walk away from the Lord for the same reason, because the kingdom Jesus came to bring doesn't come in our timing. The Jews are saying, we'll worship you, but you need to free us from our oppressor now. And, and maybe we're saying something similar. Maybe we're saying, I'll worship you, but Jesus, you need to do some things for me. I need you to get me that woman. I need you to get me that husband or that wife. I need you to get me that raise, that car, that promotion, that praise from others, that experience, that sense of belonging, that acceptance, that purpose. If you do that, then, man, I'll praise you like never before, Jesus. But then something comes along and it offers to give it to us a lot quicker, promises to give it to us faster, and we're more than happy to shout Hosanna at it, aren't we? You can be my savior. Just give me what I want. Give it to me now. When they discover Jesus isn't there to end their foreign occupation, that Jesus doesn't share their earthly fantasies of glory, they pack up and leave. Jesus said this in John 18, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were, my servants would have been fighting that I might be deli- not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom's not of this world. We misunderstand the nature of Jesus' kingdom when we look for the fullness of it now. And this is the big error of the prosperity gospel. It tells you, you can re- you know, kind of recite parts of God's word to him, like some sort of financial incantation or spell will force his hand to give you all of his kingdom stuff right now for our earthly benefit in our own little kingdom. But that is not what Jesus came for. In the words of the rapper Shai Lin, if you're living your best life now, you're headed for hell. Many today expect this to be the kingdom and all the longings of our heart to be fulfilled now and the fullness of the kingdom to happen now. And when it doesn't, they pack up and leave because the kingdom doesn't come on their timing. But secondly, it doesn't come on our turf already read, Jesus said his kingdom's not of this world, but if it isn't here, where is it? How do we get there? Take a look at Mark 8. Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life here will lose it, but whoever loses his life here for my sake and the gospels will save it there. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus here, He says the only way to the kingdom is through the cross and through dying. But if the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in wasn't going to happen in Jerusalem right then and there, then the nation didn't want any part of it. And likewise, I think that many are deserting and have deserted the Lord for the same reason today. They're saying, you know, I I know that your word says that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, but but God, I got a lot of pleasures at my right hand right now. And I think we're getting worse at this today because we're such an instant gratification culture. We don't need to wait for that. We can have it right now. 
I don't need to wait for that, Jesus. I can get that myself right now. I can get the happiness now, the pleasure now, the payoff now, the sex now, the serenity now, the rest now, all the blessings now can have them. But what a trick of the enemy. It's like the spiritual version of one of those payday loan places where you go in on Monday and you promise your check on Friday and they'll give you 70% of it now. It's what the enemy's doing. Hey, trade that and I'll give you some right now. And he did this to Jesus. Remember in Matthew 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Satan comes and, and he promises Jesus all the kingdoms of the world to the one who rules the universe and upholds it by the word of his power. Trade me all of that. I'll give you a little bit right now. Have it now. Have it here. Don't wait. Treat yourself. Have some glory. These are the lies that are still coming at our face, the same tricks. It's the same reason the crowds abandoned Jesus. It doesn't come on our timing. It doesn't come on our turf. And perhaps one of the most difficult things is it doesn't come on our terms. Look at what Jesus says in John 12. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If you know that a seed will grow and multiply a hundredfold, you put it in the earth. If you doubt that, you grind it up and make something that you can eat right now. That's, that's why he's using this agricultural analogy. Likewise, he's promised us something much greater but some of us doubt that that's actually going to take place, so we fail to put our life in the ground and invest it for that payoff later. We think, we'll take the little bit we can get from it right now. Jesus said, unless if you want to follow him, if you want to go there, you need to follow him, and the pattern that he set for us is death. And that's, let's be honest, that's not what we want to hear. Sorry, Jesus, I'm looking for a little bit more oomph in my triumphal entry, right? You need to take some marketing, Jesus, because I've got some better offers coming in. The timing of the kingdom is tough, but the fact that it, it doesn't come right now, I mean, yeah, that's tough, but the terms, these are hard. This is the hardest part. Jesus talks about this in... Um, um, the parable of uh, the seed. If you rewind with me a little bit, Matthew 13, he talks about this. It says, the same day Jesus went out to, of the house and, and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, and he tells him this parable. A sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus talked a lot in parables, but in this one in particular, he actually unpacks it. And he tells us exactly what it means. If you go down to verse 18, he, he spells it right out for us. He said, here, here then is the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So this promise of the kingdom to come, 
Sometimes the birds come and snatch it up. That's the evil one. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution comes, immediately he falls away. The seed fails to grow. As for the one that was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. There's a kingdom... It's coming, it's begun, it's already, it's not, it's not fully here, but it's begun. There's a kingdom that's here, it's tangible. You can have it, but there's another kingdom that's trying to choke it out, and you can have it all right now. You can have part of what's to come because he's begun it, but there's a kingdom now that you can have as much as you want of. The devil will give you all you want, but it will choke out the seed of the kingdom that's coming and the call of Jesus is to hold out for the kingdom that will last. Don't trade the eternal for the material. Don't exchange your eternal reward as a, at a payday loan establishment. The kingdom of Jesus will be worth the wait. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to follow me into the kingdom, he must deny himself. So set aside the indulging in this present world. He must deny himself, take up his cross. That means a willingness to die to this world. A willingness to not just abstain from pleasure, but receive pain. Follow him. That's the way. We conform to his example. And if need be, perhaps even die because of our faith in him. What's this example that we're to be conformed to? Um, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the first scene, the Mount of Olives. Jesus goes up there, he stands, and he looks down. He could see the place where Judas was going to betray him. He could see the place where Peter would cut off the man's ear. He could see the streets he would be dragged up through. He could see the place where he would be betrayed for 20 pieces of silver, the garden he'd be arrested in, the place where he'd be wrongfully accused the, the very avenue he would be forced to carry a cross up, the hill they would crucify him on, and the tomb they would bury him in. Yet he went down the hill and marched into Jerusalem. He knew what was in front of him. Yet he went down. Why? Because he also knew what would come afterward. He knew that all of this needed to take place for the kingdom to come. He knew that if we were going to be able to experience the eternal life that we were made for, the reconciliation for God, with God, that he would need to pay our eternal debt by standing in our place and taking the punishment that we deserved. Jesus went down the hill, suffered all of this, was led up another hill to be crucified so that you and I could be reconciled. And for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, it says this. Look to Jesus, the founder of our faith. He's the one who started it. He's the one who came and put a new heart in us. He founded our faith. And he will perfect our faith. Look to him because for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross, despised the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. 
if the example we are to follow is Jesus and he who by all means deserved to be hailed as King Supreme laid down his life for others, then perhaps what is being pointed out to us is that we need to get better at dying. Dying to our desires, dying to our lame little kingdoms, dying to our pathetic self-interest, dying to the temporal and the material in order that we might gain the eternal like him. The further in history we get away from the cross in the first century church, we more we, the more we think that this life is about right now, but it's not. It's not about the fulfillment of our dreams, self-realization, our glorification, our calling. It's about his kingdom. And we forget, Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. He rode in on a donkey. How silly of us to think that we deserve to have some high and lofty estate when Christ took such a humble one. Praxis, there's countless things that will try to come and choke out this seed in our hearts. And this morning, I want to encourage us to flee these cheap, counterfeit offers. See them for what they are, a cheap, fleeting kingdom and instead praxis i want to call us to hold out for the real kingdom that's coming to spend our lives our money our time our talent our blood going after the real one the lasting one the eternal one that's held out before us the band's going to come up and we're going to join together now in celebrating king jesus and what he accomplished we're going to praise him because he stood on top of that hill, knew everything that would happen, and he walked down it willingly, and he let himself be led up the other side onto Golgotha to be crucified. And the Bible promises us that one day, just as Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and looked down at what would happen, that he's going to come back. And we're told, prophecy tells us, when Jesus returns with the new Jerusalem, which we talked about last week, he's going to come and he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives again. This time, it won't be looking out over the events that precede his crucifixion and false judgment. It will be over the judgment that he's bringing on the world. And so I want to urge you, if you have never cried out to Jesus for saving, you need to see that you have sin that you are one day going to be judged for, but there is salvation in Christ. And the very one who can justly judge you seeks to forgive you. The invitation this morning is to call out to him and say, save me from my sin. While we await this glorious return where all those who have cried out for saving will be saved, Let's be a people who have our eyes fixed on this kingdom that is coming.